The episode you are about to hear was recorded pre-pandemic. I hope it provides distraction, entertainment, and some inspiration as we all adjust to our new normal. Stay safe and stay healthy. The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi, this is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All in Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them. Because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. Hi, everyone. I am especially excited to introduce today's guest. Woo! <laughs> she is the co-founder and chief content officer of digital fashion and commerce platform Who What Wear, the Who What Wear collection, which is available at Target. And she is now the creator and host of the uber popular podcast, Second Life, which we are all loving. And she's secretly my former sorority sister. Yeah, girl. Please welcome Hillary Kerr. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today. Truly my pleasure. Truly my pleasure, Hillary. No, my pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) So as you know, one thing that we like to talk about here on this podcast is the idea that growing up, you have a vision of what you think your life is going to look like. Mm -hmm. And as you get older, one of the exciting and also scary parts of it is realizing that you have the power and the responsibility to design the life that you want to lead. And I wonder for you growing up in San Diego, as I knew you did, what did having it all look like for you? To be honest, I think I was a little bit of an odd child in the sense that I only thought about career things, having a family, getting married. None of that was important to me. It was really about finding work that I found fulfilling. And in my dreams, it was, I was wildly successful. So that was the part that I was interested in. I never really thought about having it all. I thought about having the career and that was sort of the shining light. I'm not sure why I was that way. I think partially growing up, my parents had a lot of friends who were either single or married and didn't have children. So I grew up seeing that happiness wasn't getting married and having 2.3 kids, that there were lots of different paths to happiness. And the people around me who seemed the happiest, generally speaking, didn't necessarily have husbands and didn't necessarily have families. So that coupled with the fact that my parents were always extremely focused on school and education and telling me that it could be anything that I wanted to be, there was just such a internal focus on me and work and school and achievement. And no one ever really talked about, you know, sort of the rest of it. And I kind of love that because I never had any pressure. So I look at, you know, one of my very best friends in the whole world, my childhood best friend who I'm still incredibly close with. She is one of the most intelligent and educated and impressive people I know. And her parents who I love, who are both PhD doctors, always talk to her about when are you going to get married? When are you going to have kids? She felt so much pressure to do all of that, which frustrated me as her friend. Whereas I didn't have any of that. Like my parents never cared about that. And so I grew up not really thinking that much about it. I figured if it happens, cool, but let's focus on the things that I can control. 
and that can actually matter in my day to day. And that's work. Mm -hmm. Is that weird? No, I don't think it's weird at all. I actually, I never aspired to get married either, but thinking about, I know you grew up with a really like traditional family, you know, your parents are married. Right. Like my parents were divorced, so it never was something I aspired to either, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of thinking about what I wanted and what I wanted my life to look like. I, like you, was very focused on just myself, Yeah, you know, <laughs> looking out for number one and who I was, you well, know? It would just, again, it goes back to this idea of I could control my own work, but I couldn't control when you meet someone, if you meet someone, if you have kids. So I always thought if I'm happy with just me, then anything else will be additive and that will be great. But I I never wanted to hang my hopes on something that I couldn't work towards necessarily. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And work towards something you did though, because obviously you put all of your focus into your career. Mm -hmm. I know first as an editor and then for anybody who doesn't know, although I can't imagine that they don't, Can you tell us a little bit about who, what, where? Sure. So I started my career at Elle Magazine in the features department, and that's where I met my business partner, Catherine. Um, She was the West Coast editor for Elle and Elle Girl, and I was was in New York, but then had quit and was going to freelance. So I was freelancing for Elle, had just moved to LA, and maybe like a year after we met, we saw that magazines were starting to fold, Elle Girl folded. Um, At the same time, this is sort of the rise of the internet. So we thought, wouldn't it be amazing if we made a digital magazine, was the plan at the time, that had all of the fashion that we loved, that was our background, but none of the gossip like the paparazzi site. So it was basically, you know, if we could take the best of Elle and Vogue, which didn't have websites at that time, and marry that with all of the of the moment photos that you would see on Perez Hilton and other sites like that none of the gossip, all of the fashion, and then really break it down and talk about fashion in an accessible way. Everyone's is like, duh, about that now. But at the time, fashion was very like, people would talk down to you. It was very like the dictate coming down from the mountain. And we wanted to demystify that. So we created Who, What, Where, which started with a daily story where we would talk about trends. We would talk about celebrities and street style and how to really make that look your own. So it was never about look for less. It was always about educating people so that then they could make an informed decision about how they wanted to shop or style themselves. So yes, we started that in 2006. So it's been 13 years. Right. Which is a crazy passage of time. Although I remember that time intimately (laughs) because first of all, I mean, going back to that time, imagining a site like Perez Hilton, which I know still does exist, but what a toxic messaging system that it was. Remember when he would draw on people's faces? I mean, that would never fly now. But I was super interested in the clothes. So you would see Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen in a paparazzi photo, or you would see Kate Bosworth. And while the story was all about whatever was going on in their personal lives, I just remember being so intrigued by the fashion. And especially because if that same image got picked up by an L or a Vogue, you were looking at a three-month lead time until that image would actually run in the book because of how far ahead magazines work. And they would never identify what those people were actually wearing. And so we thought maybe we could do this. Maybe this would be interesting. And no one was doing anything like that at the time. There were no press releases. Right. 
like now I open my inbox and it's like, I have like 30,000 press releases of announcements like this person wore this and this and that, which is great for my business. But in the beginning we had to chase all of them. Right. You were little detectives. Yeah. No one, no one was telling us. No, but going back to that time, I remember actually sitting with you at Dominic's and you talk, <laughs> you know, and obviously that's going to age us just sitting at Dominic's, but I remember <laughs> being there and talking about it. And you guys really were like, pioneer women, because I remember thinking like, I don't know what she's talking about with this internet, you well, know? I mean, fashion didn't like the internet for a long time. No. You think about the fact that like Vogue.com didn't even exist until the late 2000s. The fact that e-commerce didn't exist for many luxury brands up until very recently, it was considered the wild west. It was considered scary. It was considered less than I mean, fashion brands didn't want anything to do with it at first until they started understanding the power of retail. Right. And and you guys, what you did also was make things accessible for people to try to emulate fashions that they were seeing and to be able to purchase those things. And to your point, I think all of the magazines really felt very out of your reach. You know, everything was ultra designer. You couldn't buy those things. And it was great for dreaming, but it was definitely not something that you were going to ever be able to and to do part, for yourself. Totally. And the other part of it is half the time that stuff didn't even exist because it was runway only. Right. So you would see something in a magazine, you would go to the back of the book, you would look up the 800 number, you would call that company and say, Hey, I saw this Chanel earring on page you know, 213 of this month. And they would have no idea what you were talking about. It was price upon request or things weren't even made, or it just was such a fantasy and it had nothing to do with my real life. And that's why we thought it was really important to do the reporting, give someone the actual designer piece, but then also find other products at similar price points that embodied the spirit of that original trend. So again, not a knockoff that wasn't interesting, but had the spirit of whatever that look was. Right. And while all this is like de rigueur now, <laughs> you guys were really, you know, created this lane for people to do because at the time you were the only ones that were doing this. Yeah. And like you said, as sort of glamorous as the whole thing looked from the outside, I know that you and Catherine were having to hold on your salaries and having yeah. to cut corners to keep this afloat during this time where you believed in something and were committed to making it work regardless. Totally. I mean, I was very broke when we started. I'd been making $25,000 a year plus overtime at, or at L in New York. And then I went freelance when I moved to LA. So money was lumpy. I'd get, you know, two big checks and then nothing for months and months and months and have to try and chase that down. I was still freelancing for a, a lot of the beginning of Who, What, Where because I had to make rent and we didn't take salaries for a very long time. So I was deeply broke, but we really believed in the business and I just sort of hustled on the side to pay the bills. But also let's be honest, I come from a really privileged place. I didn't have education debt. I didn't have medical debt. I didn't have a mortgage. I wasn't supporting anyone. My parents were financially set on their side. So I only had to make rent pay for my silly ramen and put gas in the car, basically. Was this when you would like go on these great trips and yes, for L, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so this sounds like a very exciting period of your life because you're young, you're unencumbered. I was um, you're traveling, being sent to, I played poker in the world series of poker in Vegas for a story for L or, you know, especially 
prior to that too. They sent me on a poker cruise in the Caribbean so that I could learn how to play poker. It was all sorts of right. like- Someone's got to do it. Yes. <laughs> Someone's got to do that. So it's hard work. There, there were sometimes these amazing opportunities of press trips, but I mean, it was great because I was just footloose and fancy free. And, you know, in those beginning days, but once we started Who, What, Where, that was a daily cadence. So we published, you know, one story a day, Monday through Friday. Catherine did all of the art and I wrote every single story for like the first three years. So once we started the site, it became really tough to have that sort of sexier piece of life because that daily deadline was such a grind. And because it was all obviously in real time, you weren't able to really stockpile stories. No, we didn't do stuff that was so evergreen at the time. It was really based on like who was wearing something and how recent it was. And we could get a little bit ahead, but also just doing the the research and the reporting. And keep in mind, I didn't come from fashion reporting, really. I had done a little bit of it in freelance, but my beat at L was food travel design and entertaining. I was the ghostwriter for Anna Kornikova's fitness column. I did beauty writing. I That's amazing, by the way. Yeah. That's an amazing tidbit. <laughs> it was funny, but I didn't really know as much about fashion. So I was also doing a ton of research to make sure that I was talking about it in the right way. So it was a heavy lift in the beginning. So obviously then you have built it into a huge platform. And how long was it the two of you, first of all? Um, gosh, I think a couple of years. And then our first hire was someone to help work on the art. So Catherine taught herself Photoshop and she wanted a graphic designer who could come in and help with that workload. So that was the first person. And, but again, like I wrote every story, I think for the first three years, that was a tremendous learning experience. I mean, just the muscle of writing that much. And there are only so many words for skirt. It was, um, what are some of them? (laughs) I mean, really skirt pretty much. But it was an incredibly formative time in terms of learning what I could do. Mm -hmm. I'd never worked that hard. I didn't know I was capable of that much hard work for that sustained time period. But I also really loved it. I felt a sense of accomplishment and it was great. But it was wonderful once we started having other voices on the site because then I could edit and not do every single piece and upload every single story and make every single clickable link, being able to get away from that day to day. It took a long time, but it was great. Was there a time at that point that you ever thought, I don't know that I'm cut out for this entrepreneurial life. Did you ever want to go back to magazines? Where were you at? I never wanted to go back because I didn't feel like that was the future. I still, for the record, love print magazines, but I just felt like the future was digital there were definitely moments where I felt like I was worried about the business. For example, the economic crisis happened not that long after we started. And the first budgets to get cut in terms of advertising were digital budgets. So I remember there was a period of time in, I want to say like 2008, 2009, we had a small team at that point Everyone was getting paid. Catherine and I were finally starting to get paid a small amount, less than most of our employees, but still it was enough that I started to feel like I could breathe again. I'd gotten myself into some credit card debt trying to, you know, make things work. And I was starting to dig myself out from that. And then a bunch of our advertising canceled and we had to really look at the budget and figure out that basically Catherine and I couldn't take salaries again. Right. So how, how long did that last? Do you remember? um, I think basically like we were able to take like 
a thousand or two thousand dollars a month mm-hmm. to cover rent because it was at that point where it's like I literally right cannot. I have no place to live yeah I, mm-hmm. I have to be able to do this but we also did that rather than cut our employees' salary so that was also part of it too is we didn't want to freak anyone else out but I was worried then we didn't know what the financial crisis looked like I didn't know when budgets were going to come back we didn't know how long we had to weather that storm. And so we really tightened our belts and it was uncomfortable again for, you know, probably a year. And then things started shifting again, budgets started coming back. And I also think the industry started realizing that you had real data and results around digital advertising that you didn't get from a page in a magazine. You could actually see how people were interacting with that advertisement, how they were clicking through what they were buying. And then all of a sudden we became a better investment, we meaning digital media. So things started to change again, but that part was the scary part. It was never that I wanted to go back to my old job. I just wanted to make sure that we were able to sustain the one that we had. Right. And in the sort of ethos of fake it till you make it, because Mm -hmm. you guys are the faces of this company. Yeah. We're like getting great press. Right. How did you, how did you handle that? Because again, it's like, it's the perception versus reality. Like from the outside, you know, like you said, you're getting great press. It's all looking really glam. You are going into uncharted territory for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. but behind the scenes, like, you know how hard it is. You're compromising on your own salaries to be able to keep everything afloat. How did you maintain that authenticity during that time? I was just really honest with the people in my life. Mm -hmm. So there was, my friends had already gone through it with me where there was a long period of time where if you wanted to see me, you basically had to come over to my house because I didn't have any money to go anywhere. And that was hard for me because it made me feel like work wasn't working, but it was just the reality of the situation. And I realized that once I started being honest about that with the people in my life, with my friends, then everything sort of was a little bit easier. I didn't pretend that I was rolling in money. I didn't pretend that it was easy. I was very straightforward with my friends and with anyone in my life who ever asked about it, just because I didn't see the point in pretending otherwise. I've always been pretty honest to the point of um, demystifying whatever is going on. But it was initially hard to admit how dire things were. And then after a while, I was just like, yep, I'm broke. It is what it is. Right. And don't you think that that's a through line with life though, is that when you are honest about the situation, it's like someone said something, I think it's like what you give power to holds power over you, you know? And I think that that's true about anything in life. It's like the more guarded you are about something and the more tightly you're holding on to something that you are so much more controlled by that than just being open and honest and realizing that like most everybody is, if not in a similar boat, has been there or has a lot more empathy for a situation than you understand. Very much so. I just had to get out of the way of my own ego. Yeah. Truthfully. Yeah. And I'm sure obviously that there's been tremendous successes and bumps and hurdles along the way. And who, what, where is the behemoth that it is now. But tell me about what the impetus was for starting Second Life. Second Life is a podcast that I created about a year and a half ago. And it was created really just with this idea of Let's tell stories about women who have been in one industry and then flipped the script and gone to a different industry, or maybe they've stayed in the same industry, but they've done something really different and pivoted that skill set. I wanted it to be inspirational. I wanted it to have a lot of practical advice. 
And I wanted it to give people hope so that people knew that whatever you're doing now in your current job, that that's building, you're building a skill set that will take you to your next thing, even if you can't imagine what that thing is right now. So, you know, podcasts were obviously a new way of storytelling. We've always been really interested in new mediums like, you know, who at where was the first fashion brand on Snapchat and very early on Instagram and Twitter. Like we've always been interested in meeting our audience where they are and telling stories in these different ways. And so it just seemed like a new opportunity. So I also love interviewing people. I mean, I've been a journalist for 16, 17 years. I love sitting down with people and hearing their stories. I love researching the guests, all of that stuff. So we just decided to try it. It was low risk because it's not an expensive endeavor. And we just thought, well, why not try it? And Catherine liked the idea. The rest of the team was really on board with it. So I started reaching out and casting it and putting together a roster of of women who I thought were interesting in this area. And it's been the most insane reaction. And it really just took off. I mean, we've had almost 6 million downloads and it's all been organic and just word of mouth. It's been incredible. And I had no idea that it would resonate the way that it has, but I'm really grateful for it. And people feel very emotional about it. I think podcasts are a very intimate new medium. You are in the room with someone, you're in their ear, you're in their car. And I think that's why people feel so connected to that storytelling. What I love about Second Life so much, first of all, obviously, is you. (laughs) I would be remiss if I didn't say that, especially as you're a guest here. (laughs) But I think demystifying the idea that you have to be or do any one thing for your life. Growing up, I think the model for us was that people really held fast and held strong to whatever one thing they were doing. It was like the golden watch thing where it's like you had one job for 50 years. Yeah. And then you got to watch and it was kind of done. And it's interesting because obviously now it's like everyone I know is sort of has a hundred different projects that they're doing. And I don't know if it's about a bigger need that we have to kind of also feed our souls and have what we're doing resonate in a way more than just putting food on the table for our family on one hand. And then on the other hand, it's like, this occupies so much of your time. So if you're not following at least some of the things that set your heart on fire and that make you happy, then what is the point? You know, what has been the through line for you with some of the people that you've talked to? Well, I think the interesting thing is, is that while there are lots of people who plan ahead, they have goals and they obviously are super successful and they accomplish those goals and they talk about goal setting all the time. I've never been that person. Same. And I always felt a little bit lesser because of that. This is not to take anything away from that process because it obviously works really well for a lot of people, but I have found it very comforting to hear, you know, in the hundred women I've sat down with that very few of them had a master plan. A lot of them have been surprised by the way that their careers have turned out, that they have been a little bit more go with the flow, that they have taken opportunities as they've come. And some of them are total planners too, but it just made me excited about the fact that there are so many different ways to go about having a successful career and a successful life, that there's not one path that isn't always planned out, that there are, you know, endless options and opportunities. And that I feel like is a very hopeful way of looking at anyone's career. And I think that there's also lots of different definitions of success. Yeah. And that's really an interesting 
notion that you tap into also is because you have women who are kind of heading down one path and either it was a passion or, you know, a pivot that took them to another route and they they got fired and they had to figure their shit out. Which by the way, I love hearing those stories because I think it's so important for us to acknowledge that there was no linear path to anything. And, you know, there's lots of times I I was fired from a ice cream store. I mean, really? Yeah. I had a couple too many guests. I saw I was talking on the phone. I bet you learned some lessons from that. You know what? It's funny because you think about, you know, what you've learned along the way that does help you later in your career. And I think that like you take something from everything. But totally. That wasn't one of my more teachable moments. I think it was I think it was pretty straightforward. But, you know, I didn't pursue ice cream for that reason. It's there a very cutthroat industry. So I left that. You know, obviously there's all these different paths to success. And I wonder, you said that you're not really like, you know, a traditional goal setter. Are you able to take the victories in your own life, you know, and can you acknowledge when you have achieved something or are you really focused on going around the next bend? I think I'm more focused on the next thing. So I'm not great about sitting with the success and that feels weird and gross even just saying it. I don't know why. By saying sitting with the success? Yes. Okay. That just made me, I'm cringing. Right. You're physically, physically cringing. Yeah. Because success is fleeting and it's just a moment. And I do think it's important to say like, hey, we, we hit this milestone or we did, you know, something major happen. But I think Catherine and I, before our book party for our, I think our second book, we went and had a glass of champagne together before going to the party. And basically we're like, well, we did it. And then that was our whole moment. And then we went to the party and it was fine. And then we never really talked about it again. And, but that still was a a big leap forward for us to say like, Hey, we did something. But I just really think that for me, it's not so much about those big win moments. I'm always interested in the next thing and the next opportunity and what is going to inspire me the next time. There's not a lot of sitting with it. I don't know why. I think that we've done a lot of incredible things, but I don't love to relax into it. Right. Well, I think that there's a difference between resting on your laurels and just taking small victories and realizing that every day there's little successes that you have to hopefully celebrate because there's no big there. You know what I mean? Like, is there a there there? And there's not a there there, right? Or do you think there's a there? I haven't had it yet. So, I mean, everything on paper looks like a huge moment. It'll feel great for a a second, for a day, and then it's gone. Mm -hmm. And so I really learned not to invest too much of my emotional well-being or happiness in these moments of success because they're so fleeting. What actually makes me happy is doing the work every single day. Right. That's where I get self-esteem, not in, you know, sort of like the pinnacle moment of it that I always end up feeling a little bit like eye rolly in that moment. Right. So your fulfillment comes more from the process. Yeah, very much so. It's not the end result. And that's great too. Obviously, I think that's very much like life is a journey, not a destination, right? But I think it's so interesting to explore the idea of there because right now we live in this super comparative culture. Yeah. We see all these highlight reels. And externally, I'm here to obviously to tell you what you already, you know, I think acknowledge on some level, which is that you have achieved a lot of success, you know, and it's important to give yourself a pat on the back sometimes and to recognize that and to appreciate that. But we have to seek fulfillment from places that feel, I guess, a little less fleeting or more. Well, part of it real for me too, is that 
all of our success, all of it is so much in part because of our team. Like it's not my success. It's our team's success. And I feel really good about celebrating the team's success. I applaud the team on a daily basis. Nothing would get done without our incredible, incredible company. And that part of it, I feel very comfortable celebrating when it's about something that I've achieved necessarily. That's where it gets a little bit harder for me. I understand that. I want to give a special thanks to our partner, Monkey 47 Gin, the gin with an international cult following among bartenders and connoisseurs alike. It took one of the most in-demand brands in the world's top cocktail bars to finally give Rosé the day off it deserved at my house. Monkey 47 is known for its unique and eccentric recipe using, you guessed it, 47 botanicals, more than any other gin. My go-to drink recently has been a Negroni, and Monkey 47's notes of lavender, grapefruit, lemon, and mint bring me that much closer to my destiny of sipping them along the Italian coast rather than in my own backyard wearing my sweatpants. We are so excited to partner with Monkey 47 for a fresh take on our favorite cocktails. Please drink responsibly, and now back to having it all in other lives. So transitioning a little bit more into your personal life. Yeah. I'm going to get, yeah. Oh yeah. Which has changed so much. Right. Well, and I'd love to talk about that. So congratulations. Cause I know you recently had another baby. Yes. Baby number two. Yes. Now I have two. Who is very young right now still. Yes. yes. She's three months. Okay. So, I mean, you're still so in it. I'm on maternity leave. Right. And that's why I really appreciate you being here today. And I, I will say you're also coming from a panel. I mean, this is like a yeah. woman who's like really doing the most. I mean, doing a lot. Certainly. Yeah. I was laughing because I was texting Sarah because I was running late because I was pumping in the car because my panel ran over. And that's and just, I, I offered you of shelter from the storm to pump here. Thank you. But I feel like that's my most, you were like in way. your mobile, in your mobile pumping station. <laughs> Completely. Where I was just like, Oh God, you talk about, do you glamorous. have that bra? Yeah. Because I, I remember pumping in my car and I had yeah. that like zip up bra, yeah. you know, and you Hands have free. the little like cones through. And I was like, God, if I roll up next to anybody, they're going to get such a weird eyeful right now. And the number of truck of, like, drivers wah, who wah, have seen wah, things wah, over wah, that terrible noise. Yeah. Well, the number of truck drivers, cause they're higher up. Yeah. Well, they look down and I'm just like, yep. This yeah. Is what do you want me to do about it, dude? Making food for a baby. Right. Calm down. So how has that shifted your focus on your work life, your career, your home life, your two babies, you're pumping in the car, you it's, know, like having kids has been the best thing ever for my work, which sounds counterintuitive, but it has given me perspective that I did not have before and has made me so much more efficient. I wasted so much time before because I had all kinds of time. And now time is a luxury. Oh, you have no idea of the value of time until you have none. Yes. It's yeah. really true. So, and it also has made me... Same goes for cellulite, by the way. Do you know what I mean? Like, because <laughs> yeah, I've always had it. <laughs> it's just like you, you you don't realize how sweet the time is until all that kicks in. <laughs> um, but it's been one of those things like where I just realized that, you know, I have a certain amount of hours in the day, a certain amount of time to be at work how much I need to get done, how I need to go about doing that. And then ultimately, you know, especially as someone who had, uh, my son was born early and we spent some time in the hospital with him. 
So now really understanding sort of the importance of health in the grand scheme of things, of I now can see like when something goes wrong at work, like is anyone actually sick or dying or is there a problem here of that level? No. Okay. Well then we can figure it out. And it's just given things that used to stress me out. I think I have a little bit more perspective on now because there are worse things that can happen in this world than a project not being on time. So I think that I have a better perspective on what's really important and I'm a lot more efficient now. How do you, as a business owner, because, you know, the adage is sort of like we expect women to raise children as if they're not working and work as if they're not raising children. And as a business owner, you're sort of like, not to say mothering a lot of people, but you are, you know, you're at the helm of a lot of different personalities. You're responsible for a lot of different people. How do you... I think that's why I didn't, wasn't super interested in having kids, to right. be honest. I didn't have my first kid until I was 38. And truthfully, part of that was I got married when I was 37. I sort of figured to out- To a wonderful guy, let us just say. Thank you. I, I Shout out to Jonathan Leahy. Well, as well. But that part of my life came much later, but I also think I wasn't as interested in it because I felt very fulfilled by- all of my sort of maternal and nurturing side was taken up by work and by our incredible team and nurturing the people who are on those teams. I got a lot of that energy out before, which was kind of a funny thing. It's funny also that you kind of like reference it as getting married late in life, you know, mm-hmm. at 37, you said? Yeah. Because I do think, first of all- there's... I was late in my friend group and in my world group. Right. Because there's so much benefit to- knowing yourself more, Mm -hmm. right? And like at that stage of your life, you have a better sense of who you are, what you need, what's important to you. And so hopefully does your partner. Well, my mom always says that the change between 20 and 30 is so much bigger than between 30 and 40 and then between 40 and 50. So it's like who you are is cemented a little bit as time goes on. And I think it's so great when people meet their partner early on and can grow together. I just was not that person. Right. You know, yeah, my life has changed a lot in the last yeah. few years. Well, and I really—it's been a little bit of a whiplash, to be perfectly frank. So, first of all, I really respect that you're you're very open in terms of your social channels. Is you know sometimes kind of like lamenting not this new life, but there's a certain nostalgia for like the old Hillary. Oh my god! You yes. know, like where is she? I feel like that Talking head song. It's like, this is not my beautiful life. Like, this is not my beautiful house. It's yeah. A, and it's a weird thing where it's like, I feel like I'm playing at being a grown up in so many ways. Because if you think about it, four years ago, I was living alone. I had a boyfriend and, you know, worked. That was my whole life. And in the last four years, I've gotten married, bought a house and had two kids really in the last three years. So that's a big shift. And so now I can't sleep like a starfish in the middle of my bed by myself. I have people who need me, (laughs) things that need to happen. And so, yeah, I think back on the luxury that was being 36 and having my own space and doing whatever I wanted. And I feel nostalgic for that time. And I miss some of that couch time when I could just sit on my couch and watch TV and no one would bother me. I like what you said though, where... (laughs) You're like, I'm not romanticizing it because, you know, I have children now and I have a husband and we went to the farmer's market, but I'm not happier now than I was before. It's It's different. It's just different happy. And I think that's really important to talk about because I know that when I was single and I would see people and they're talk about comparative Instagram world with like with their cute spouse or their cute family or in their cute house. And I would think, wow, that looks really great. I didn't necessarily want it for myself. It seemed like 
a different level of happiness or contentment than I necessarily had access to. And now being on the other side of it, it's just like, remember people, like you have to be happy wherever you are. Be happy when you're single, be happy when you have a family, be happy in every version of your life because they aren't better. They're just different. Yeah. I think that's so true. It's definitely wherever you go, there you are. Exactly. And I thought that was such a lie that was fed to me that like you would be so much happier or more fulfilled or anything when you have all of these, you know, trappings. And it's like, no, not really. Like there are parts of it that are amazing. There are parts of it that suck. Same as being single. So you can't wait for something else in your life to happen to be happy. You have to be happy where you are and know that that will change over time. And how much of that happiness do you think is kind of a daily choice? I mean, I think a lot of it, truthfully. I think that, you know, acknowledging that I am incredibly fortunate that I come from a place of privilege and yes, I've worked really hard, but acknowledging that like I started on second base is really important. I think that by giving back and being involved in philanthropy, that that's really helpful because again, it gives you perspective that not everyone has the life that you have. And I think just, you know, waking up every day and being grateful because I've had really tough times and I'm not necessarily in that tough time at this exact moment, but I remember what that's like. And you know, it's always around the corner. I mean, nothing stays the same. The good doesn't stay the same. The bad doesn't stay the same. And that is both depressing and optimistic. hundred percent. But just knowing that there's going to be tough times ahead and they're going to be great times ahead. And if you can have perspective on the fact that it will never always be bad and it will never always be good, then you can kind of roll with the punches a little bit. I think what you just said is so important because while the notion of like nothing lasts forever is both ominous and optimistic because you want to hold on to these good moments like forever. You never, you know, like right now my kids are young and it's perfect and they're sweet and they're healthy and there's so much good, but then you're scared of, you know, of losing any of those things or what could happen. I think it's just remembering too, that you have the tools to overcome the obstacles that come your way and coming at it from a place of confidence versus fear and just realizing that you're just kind of not necessarily in the passenger seat, but you got to like roll a little bit with the punches. And I think time helps with all of that. I mean, I was much more anxious about all of these things at 20 than I am at 40. I think once you just, when you get a little bit older and you just see the cycles come and go, then you can relax a little bit. Right. Or at least it's been easier for me. Did you find that having your son early changed the way that you thought about having another child? I didn't want fear to stand in the way of making decisions. So even though it was terrifying, I weirdly have been very brave when it comes to having kids. I just have leapt and figured nature will handle it in some way or another. I have never put too much pressure. My husband has also been great about this too, about like whether or not I got pregnant, whether or not, you know, we had a kid, we both were very much like, well, it's a little bit up to the universe and, and we'll go with the flow. So with baby number two, I was nervous, but I also had science on my side. We knew what had happened the first time around. And so even though there were no guarantees that I could go all the way to term, we knew that there were some things that we could do to make best efforts to get there. And sure enough, I I ended up having my daughter six days early, which is nothing, but I wasn't. And she's perfect. She is. She's delish, but it weirdly wasn't 
that scary in the deciding. What was scary was the process as always. I mean, I was on bed rest for the last two months of that pregnancy and that was pretty scary. But again, I also just knew like we can get through this. I've gotten through this before. We'll make it work. It'll be okay. And ultimately I was raised pretty much without religion. My mother is as close to a transcendentalist as you could get. I feel like if Thoreau was a religion, she would be it. So I never had anything governing the way I thought about things, except for the movie Defending Your Life with Al Brooks and Meryl Streep. And that movie, if you haven't seen it, it's a gem, but it also really has informed my worldview, which is that at the end of our lives, the the premise of the movie is you go to Judgment City and your life is reviewed. And if you have overcome fear in your life on earth, you move on. And if you haven't, you are sent back to earth to try again. And weirdly that always resonated with me. So I try not to make fear-based decisions. And strangely, that's probably one of the only true guiding principles in my life. So there was this stubborn part of me that even though I'd had this very traumatic birth situation, I was like, well, I'm not going to let that fear keep me from doing this again. And, you know, it was not an easy ride the second time either, but we made it through. Right. And now I have a little girl, which was, you know, a dream as well. And I'm really glad that I took that leap. One thing I saw you recently said was about learning to be more vocal about your needs. And as someone who mentioned you may be a little bit stubborn and (laughs) me and you are obviously a very high functioning self-sufficient person you know I love what you're saying about not living fear-based but I think sometimes also there's an element of vulnerability in telling people that you need help and I wonder if this was one of those times where you have been learning to use your voice in that way of, you know, I think you mentioned even asking your husband for support sometimes yeah, because you can't do it all no, I mean, I'm I'm a weirdo in that I didn't put the first or the second pregnancy on Instagram. I kept that very private because I didn't want like Also not weird by the way. Like I, that's a private time and you can handle it however you feel makes sense for you in your life. I feel like it is not the norm certainly, mm-hmm. but I just for me even the first time when I had no idea it was going to be tough, I just wanted to get through it and figure it out myself before talking about it. It's interesting so like publicly I wouldn't talk about things, but Privately, I was, I've always been pretty candid and now I'm starting to talk about things a little bit more publicly as well about the need for help. And the fact of the matter is, is no one knows what you need unless you tell them like my husband, my, you know, co-founder, my team, no one knows what I need unless I actually articulate it. And I think we all expect people just to know because I so often know what other people want. I can intuit, I can feel and then try and give that to them. But the fact of the matter is, is that you have to be your own best advocate. You have to talk about what you need. You have to talk about what you want because then people can rise to the occasion. And the other part of this too, though, is just because you can say, this is what I need or what I want, doesn't mean you're going to get it. And I think that's sometimes where people get frustrated. They think, well, I told you what I need. Why isn't it happening? It's like, well, you, you need to make peace with the fact also that you might not get it exactly in the way that you want it, but you have to ask. And chances are, at least it's a lot closer of a likelihood that you will get what you want if you ask for it articulately. Yes. Versus, and I sometimes do this too, I like silently 
I'm kind like, of, how could you not know? Well, I'm just like, in my mind, I so clearly know what I need and I'm expecting somebody else to intuit it. So, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's at work or at home, you really have to, like you say, advocate for yourself. And also if you can give somebody a map to what you need and then they can't deliver on it, then it's a different equation versus just the, you know, the unspoken expectation, which is something I fall into a lot for sure. Yeah. And it's scary to actually articulate what you want because what's also scary is then you might not get it. And then you have to deal with that after the fact. But it also, I think is just a good lesson in resilience. Like you can ask, you might not get it, but at least you're opening that dialogue and having that conversation. And then people can't say, well, you never told me. Right. Exactly. I wonder if you ever feel like you are crushing it in one particular category of your life and getting crushed someplace else. I mean, every day it shifts. So there are days that I feel like everything is going great with work and, you know, my marriage needs some help. There are days that I feel like the kid stuff is going really well and work is not, it needs more attention. There are times when Jonathan and I are super strong, but I'm at my wits end with the kids. Like it always is shifting at all times. I think that I have fewer expectations of everything being fabulous all the time. And that, that helps me navigate through it all. But I mean, it's honestly like constantly changing. Nothing feels like I have it all great all the time. I mean, for the most part, I feel underwater truthfully in all areas. Like I don't always feel like a great mom. I don't feel like a great wife. I don't feel like a great friend. I don't feel like I'm always killing it at work. I feel like work is probably the easiest one in some ways because it's clear what to do. I've never had a two-year-old before. I don't know how to potty train. Like we are working through it. It is an unknown. Whereas with work, I feel like there are certain things that I can do. I'm like, okay, there are concrete things that I can do that will make a difference. And this will be the reaction. And this is, and it's less emotional and that is easier. So like when things get really chaotic, I tend to focus on work because at least then I can feel like I'm getting that house in order. And then it's easier to get the other houses in order, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. And I think that it's also a, a defense mechanism, right? Where it's like, oh, if things feel overwhelming in my real life, then I retreat into my work life. Right. It's a little bit like the Devil Wars Prado where it's like, wait until your life implodes and you know you're killing it at work, you know? (laughs) But I think nobody is ever feeling like they've got it all under control, especially when you're trying to manage all these crazy variables. I also think that I just have some perspective on the fact that everything is a season and you just have to take those seasons as they come. And right now I am incredibly tired. I am primary caretaker of our baby. We have help during the day, but not at night. And I feel super fortunate that we do have daytime help with the two-year-old, but that baby cries, the sleep deprivation, the night, it's definitely a thing. But I also, especially the second time around, I've realized this is such a short period of time This is such a short season that I'm going to be tired like this and it's going to be crazy like this. And the next thing you know, she's going to be walking and talking and doing all of that stuff. And that makes it easier to get through the difficulty that is right now. I can't believe how quickly the last two years have gone by. And I also think having had a really rough beginning with my son has given me an incredible amount of patience for the rest of the mess that is my life and also perspective. Because when your kid's in the hospital, that is stress. All of the rest of it is fixable. 
Well, I think that that will definitely serve you, though, throughout a lot of challenging times and just having that perspective. Why are we crying? I don't know. <laughs> it is. This is, you know what? Listen, it, this is, it's all a shitty time. <laughs> it is a terrible time. And the thing is, is that it is so scary when you realize the fallibility of your own parents because the expectation that your kids have that you're someone that knows what they're doing or is leading the ship is the scariest thing ever. Because yeah. in my mind, I'm still 17 and it's terrifying. Yeah, it is terrifying. I think the part that is scariest for me is just loving these little critters so very much. I obviously love my husband incredibly, but the amount of love that I have for these kids and the desire to keep them safe and happy and all of those things is just so overwhelming. And that makes me feel super vulnerable because I've never loved anything as much as I love them. I can very much relate to that. And I think that we're living in really scary, trying times. And we have so much information on so many terrible things that are happening every day. And I find that when you have kids, for me, it was like the first time that I actually was in touch with feeling emotion. Mm -hmm. You know, my heart now lives outside of my body into other beings. And the idea that I don't have the ability to have my eyes on them 24 seven and that things happen and things are scary, you know, is really terrifying. And I think that it makes you sort of operate from this place where you're bracing for impact at all times. Yeah. I mean, one thing too, is I think with having a, a traumatic birth situation too, and having him come early and having the hospital stay, I didn't see that coming. And I think that also has been really scary for me is because I just now know, like, it's not just the things you prepare or brace yourself for. It's stuff that you will never see coming. And that was also freeing in a weird way where I'm like, I can't worry about everything because the thing that will happen will not necessarily be the thing that you thought was going to happen. And that sounds so depressing and scary, but strangely, I feel like that also made me let go of some of this stuff. We all are capable of moving through things. A hundred percent. And you are definitely moving through it. Yeah. Trying. You're trying. Yeah, you're thriving. <laughs> Trying. <laughs> you know what? It's it's trying just a perception enough. thing. Exactly. That's why I'm like having it all. No, having it most. Having it most. That's all I want. I just want most. I don't want it all. I don't need it all. All is a big responsibility. All means that you can lose a lot of things. Most is good enough for me. Well, that leads me to my final question, <laughs> Hillary, which, you know, in a way, the life that you envisioned for yourself absolutely did come true, right? And you have had all these professional successes. But there's been this other element to your life that you hadn't planned for. And I wonder now, looking at it, what does having it all look like to you today? It just means having a healthy family. That's, That's really it. it. That's the only thing that really matters. You can fix everything else. Right. Thank you so much for coming today. Sarah. I love you. Thank you for sharing oh, with us. God, crying. You know what? It, what is a day if it doesn't start with a healthy cry? Okay. <laughs> Truly. I mean, I feel so in touch with my emotions these days. It's true. Thank you for having me. Of I really course. appreciate it. And for anyone who doesn't follow her already, <laughs> you can, of course, follow along at Hillary Kerr. Yes. As well as please check out whowhatwhere.com. Mm -hmm. And what is the Second Life? Secondlifepod.com. Secondlifepod.com. Secondlifepod on Instagram and Twitter. And also wherever you get your podcast. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, 
Please rate and review only the good stuff, of course. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and spread the word to all of your friends. Thanks for joining and please follow along at Having It All Podcast. See you next week.